You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. When we talk about slavery in America, we usually talk about it in the context of the American South and the legacy of racism that still emanates from that time in the American South. We have a tendency in the North to look at slavery and overt racism as something that's sort of a part from us. It's over there. It possesses a history we put behind us and an otherness that we somehow don't really relate to. But what if the history of slavery in Michigan stretched beyond the salvation of the Underground Railroad, something we often celebrate in uh, the North about uh, the legacy of slavery? What if the North wasn't all about abolitionists and defenders of justice for all? What if we talked about how slavery's evil economy powered cities like Detroit? Tia Miles is a history professor at the University of Michigan and author of a new book called The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. She joins us now to talk about that legacy of slavery right here in the city of Detroit. Tia, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. And it's Taya. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Taya. That's I'm okay. Sorry. There we go. Good for, good for you for correcting me there. <laughs> um, uh, let's, let's start with uh, how far back. That was the thing uh, when I read the book that really, really, uh, I guess, startled me a little bit. I mean, I, I consider myself somebody who's probably a little more familiar with the legacy of slavery in Detroit than most people. Uh, but I was shocked at how far back it goes and how integral it was to the growth of Detroit and its economy in particular in those early days. Well, I was shocked too. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I have grown up with an identity of feeling like I was someone who lived north of the Ohio River in a free state. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to Michigan to teach at the university, I continued with that feeling of a positive identity connected to the Midwest and the Great Lakes. So when I started doing this research and realized that people had been enslaved in Detroit and in Michigan, going back to at least the 1750s -hmm. and probably the 1730s and maybe even 1701 when the Fort Town was founded, I was completely shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, the the research that you did for this, I mean that's one of the things I'm going to want to talk about in a little bit how difficult it is to sort of put the records together to to know what actually happened. I know that was a big part of uh of trying to to, to get this book done. But but I I first want to talk about what slavery looked like in a city like Detroit. When we think of slavery in the American South, we think of cotton, we think of sugar, we think of uh, beets and the kind of things that that, that grew out of the ground uh, in those states. Uh, What were slaves doing in a city like Detroit in the 1700s? Well, I think you put your finger on it, Stephen, that we have this image of slavery as being connected to the South and to rural economic enterprise. But really, slavery adapted itself, or I should say, slave owners adapted slavery to their needs depending upon the environment. And up here in Michigan, the environment was wooded. It was uh, a watery environment full of lakes and rivers. And the fur trade 
was the chief economic enterprise. Mm -hmm. This is how Detroit and Michigan, the Northwest, gained its great wealth in that early period, was through trapping beavers, trading beavers, and um, really helping to support and spawn a global frenzy over beaver fur as an item of apparel. Mm -hmm. So beaver hats, for instance. And what enslaved people in Detroit were really put to work doing was furthering this trade. So black men and African-American um, women had, had different aspects of the work that they did. Black men tended to be uh, packaging furs and transporting furs across great distances, working on these very dangerous boats. And Native American men were also enslaved, doing the same thing. Black women, Native women, were working inside of households in Detroit, making sure that people in those homes had food on their plates, mm -hmm. had clothing to wear. Uh, basically, in a situation where life was pretty isolated from other major European towns, Detroiters had to depend on each other just to survive, and enslaved people did this work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you lay out really be beautifully in the book that early history and the struggle between uh, the British and the French over these northern colonies, uh, the, which they were at the time. Uh, talk about that influence over slavery, that international sort of influence. I mean, that, that's another thing I think we don't often talk about or think about in terms of American slavery is the role that uh, these, these two empires played in not just, uh, not just uh, having slavery be a, a function of the culture, but in furthering it and sort of uh, building it uh, integrally into, the, into that culture. Well, it's a layered history because Detroit has been occupied by numerous European mm -hmm. and American powers. The area of Detroit around the river started off as a Native American place, like everywhere in this country. And it was a place where Huron people, Ottawa people hunted, sometimes put up temporary camps and uh, worked the waterways. But when the French occupied a large part of Canada, and the Great Lakes area, an area known as New France, mm -hmm. they then started enslaving people. They enslaved Native Americans, and they also enslaved African Americans. Later on, the French lost a big war, the Seven Years' War, to the British. Mm -hmm. And then the British took over the area. And a lot of the struggle between these imperial powers had to do, again, with that really lucrative trade in furs. It's hard for us to imagine it now, but I try to explain it in terms of the global struggle over oil in our time. Mm -hmm. When the fur trade was pivotal, everybody wanted a piece of it. Everybody wanted to control it. And as the eastern areas were becoming overhunted, the Great Lakes areas looked like an incredible place to continue to hunt these beaver. And the native hunters were the ones who actually knew how to do it. And so these European powers had to depend upon native hunters to actually trap the beaver, to bring them into uh, ports and to forts, and to prepare the beaver for trade. So they fought over this. The French fought to maintain it, then they lost. The British fought to get it, and they won. And then when the Americans came in 
and fought the British in the Revolutionary War, the Americans were also very much aware of the importance of this trade. Thomas Jefferson talked about it. He explained that if America could only get Detroit and could only take over this particular post, they would then have an entry into this vast and lucrative trade that the British had controlled. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Taya Miles. She is a history professor at the University of Michigan and author of a book called The Dawn of Detroit, a chronicle of slavery and freedom in the city of the Straits. We are talking about that book and the profound legacy of slavery that shaped the early days of our city here in Detroit. Uh, the idea that the economy was so dependent on slavery, something that we don't think about uh, here in Detroit, something that we often assign almost exclusively to the American South. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. It's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or if you go to Twitter uh, and hashtag us at Detroit Today, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Ty, I want to sort of uh, fast forward a little bit. Slavery looks a little different in the 1800s in Detroit than it did in the 1700s. Part of that is because the country starts to look different. Uh, but, but talk about that sort of transition. And then, of course, the rise of the abolitionist movement and its influence over, over Michigan and Detroit. Well, the French brought slavery to Detroit. And then when the British took over, they brought even more enslaved people into the area. And with the British victory, more African-Americans came in. Mm -hmm. The American part of this history is a different story. And this is the moment after the Revolutionary War when we tend to think that the situation changed and it became positive and things progressed and enslaved people were freed. Because many of us know about the Northwest Ordinance, Uh which was an important document that was created in the early part of American history in 1787. That ordinance actually says that there shall be neither slavery nor servitude in the Northwest Territory, which included Michigan and our neighboring Great Lakes states. So we think that the late period and the early 19th century would be different, but actually not very much changed because the American legislators actually had to maintain this delicate balance between Southern politics and Northern politics. And Southerners were pushing for the maintenance of slavery and also the expansion of slavery. So what happened was a law that said slavery wouldn't exist in the Northwest Territory, which is where we are right now. It Mm -hmm. includes Michigan. And yet that law was filled with loopholes and it was never actually enforced on the ground. One of the biggest loopholes in the law was that anybody who already had slaves was allowed to keep them. Well, that was basically everybody in Detroit. So if you were a slaveholder, you kept your slaves. And if you were an American moving in from the East Coast at this time, maybe starting your law business, as many people began to do after the American occupation, you also had access to slave labor because you could marry into a wealthy British family You could marry into a wealthy French family, as many prominent early Americans did. 
Or you could rent a slave. You could sign a contract of indenture and borrow a slave. So even though slavery was supposed to be outlawed in the American period, it really wasn't. It took a major court decision in 1807 mm-hmm. in the Michigan Territorial Supreme Court before slavery was directly addressed in Michigan. And that decision by Justice Augustus Woodward actually put in place, in place a graduated emancipation plan. So not everybody was freed by that. Right. Only people who were born at a certain time, that is, children, young people, were freed by that. Many other people, older people, still continued to live as slaves. And slavery went on until around 1820. It wasn't until Michigan statehood in 1837, that slavery was finally and officially abolished. Now, at that time, there was probably um, one elderly person still enslaved in Michigan. Wow. Wow. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Taya Miles about slavery and its legacy here in the city of Detroit. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Taya Miles. She's a history professor at the University of Michigan, and she's the author of a book called The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. We are talking about the legacy of slavery here in Detroit. And uh, we should make a note that Taya Miles will be at Source Booksellers tonight at 6 p.m., so if you want to discuss this book or hear more about it, uh, show up there. Uh, Taya, I want to I want to talk about the the more popular narrative, I suppose, that uh, we we embrace here about slavery, and that's the role that Michigan and Detroit played uh, in the abolition and in the Underground Railroad. Uh, but I, but I sort of want you to talk about how that either sort of connects with this this legacy of slavery in Michigan or somehow, I guess, maybe stands completely apart from it. It seems as though these things have to have some sort of uh, connective tissue between them. I do think that there is a connection. Here in Michigan, we're aware of the really important role of Detroit in the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. We celebrate it. We're proud of it. It is a key aspect of our identity, I think. But actually, in the larger Underground Railroad literature, and uh, for people who um, might not be from the Midwest, who've just heard about the Underground Railroad, Michigan and Detroit aren't as visible. So I think it has been a very important thing that folks on the ground, that people in universities, that students, that writers, have actually carved out a space for the recognition of Detroit on the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Philadelphia, Boston, and New York that were these great Underground Railroad cities. Detroit was crucial in that movement, in large part because it was located right on the border with Canada, and that Detroit River 
was the last river that enslaved people had to cross right. before they would be safe from U.S. laws and U.S. slave catchers. So I don't want to give short shrift to that history. It's incredibly important. But I think that it has been the case that in celebrating that aspect of our history, uh, we haven't been aware of, we haven't paid attention to the earlier history, uh-huh. which is really um, a prologue to the Underground Railroad story. Detroit was an incredibly politicized place. Black residents there, Native American residents there in the early 1800s, they had a very clear understanding about power relations, about the dangers of racial prejudice, and about the abiding threat of slavery. And their understanding didn't just pop up in the 1830s with the Underground Railroad. I think that they were actually more politicized and more aware in Detroit because they were in a place where slavery had existed and persisted. And there had been freedom struggles against slavery in Detroit going back to the earliest history that we can um, see in the documents that describes black and native enslavement. So Underground Railroad activists in the 1830s really had a tradition to build on. They had stories to build on. They had a legacy to build on when they put together an incredibly intricate and uh, amazingly secretive system to help enslaved people escape across the border. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's talk about the, the difficulty in trying to put this kind of story together, finding the documents, finding the records. I think, I think in some ways that goes to what we were just talking about, this, this, uh, this desire to sort of pretend that this didn't happen or that it didn't have as big a role that it did, that there's a kind of whitewashing, I guess, of, mm-hmm. of this particular history. Well, I have to admit that I found out about this um, by accident in a way. I mean, I was researching <laughs> abolitionism in Michigan. <laughs> right. That was my, my area, uh, area of um, entry. And it wasn't until I started looking at Michigan laws that I realized there was a lot going on before abolitionism. So... I'm somebody who's interested in slavery. I've studied it for many years. I teach it. And it still wasn't visible to me. And it's partly for the reason that you say we don't have the same kind of records in Detroit that we have in southern locations. Uh And there are a number of reasons for that. One reason is that Detroit was really um, a military-run place. It didn't have the infrastructure of government that other locations had. And it was sort of flying by the seat of its pants in the 1700s and uh, even into the early 1800s. So that there wasn't the same degree of record keeping that we see on southern plantations, for instance, where the slave masters were keeping the lists of their enslaved people and keeping a list of their value and so on. And in addition to that, we know that Detroit had a major fire in 1805, known as the Great Fire of Mm -hmm. 1805. Mm -hmm. And that fire knocked out the whole town. So any records that might have existed were destroyed. Were probably destroyed in that fire. Sure. We are just lucky <laughs> that uh, the records of St. Anne, Anne's Church survived because the priests and some of the prisoners actually grabbed up all that they could from the church while the fire was blazing and ran out of the building with it. And in addition to the fact that we didn't have the records to begin with, many of them were destroyed, is what we've just been discussing, Stephen, and that is... We don't think about slavery as being a part of Detroit's story or a part of Michigan's story, and so we don't see it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that we tend to find what we expect <laughs> to find. Yeah. We don't expect it. We can't recognize it. And that's been another part of uh, the challenge of unearthing this history. Yeah, yeah. Taya Miles is a history professor at the University of Michigan and author of the book, The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits. You can see her tonight at 6 p.m. at Source Booksellers here in Midtown. Taya Miles, thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Sure. That's going to do it for me this week. I will be back next week. I will actually be broadcasting from NPR studios in Washington at the beginning of next week. Also, stay tuned. I will be a guest on the show On Point, which follows Detroit Today at 10 o'clock here on WDET. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you next week.